Hello and welcome back to the In The Can podcast. As always, I'm Devin, and this week I am with... James. And no Tom. Tom is currently getting over a infection of some sort, I believe. Uh, he's been in the hospital for a few days. Yeah, so not into too great detail, but... Yeah. So, get well, Tom. Uh, hopefully you come back within the next couple of weeks, so we can continue, you know, making fun of you and making fun of movies. And so you, uh, you don't have other various health problems. Yeah, I'll, you know, also just don't die. Cool. We'd like that. So, that out of the way. Uh, we didn't have a show last week um, because of just pure mess of schedules. This week we're recording it late because, again, mess of schedules. And this will be kind of the story going forward here in October. People working odd hours, mostly me. And we'll be recording these on Monday, hopefully. And we'll deal with that as it goes on. So... Yeah, that's kind of that housekeeping out of the way here. Uh, we're not going to have a, a weekly roundup this week because, again, just not enough time. Things not meshing quite so well right now. Yeah, maybe next week, and then we'll have like an info dump of all the movies we've seen so far in October. But if not, when November hits, then we'll deal with that. So if you're looking for a Joker review or a Gemini Man review or an El Camino review, those will eventually be going up just... Uh, Hold off for a bit. Yeah. <laughs> All right, then. So what are we doing today, Devin? What we're doing, and this will be continued next week and into the next week, uh, are the steps of making a film. This week will be pre-production. Next week is production. Week after that, to post-production. And if we have another week that we need to waste, we can do marketing. Someone else can do marketing because I hate marketing. I think most people do. Hey, marketers love marketing because that's all they do. Yeah, they're also not well-adjusted. Yeah, true. But this week, we're doing pre-production. What do you know about pre-production there, James? I'll have to say not too much. To me, pre-production, actually thinking about it, is getting all the stuff, all the stuff before the actual shooting starts okay. in line so that there's no real mess. All right. Uh, so the, the basic idea of pre-production, and usually this is the one that is the most overlooked as far as low-budget filmmakers go, um, you usually get everyone focusing on the production, you get people like knowing you have to edit after you shoot everything, so there's that. Uh, that's post-production. Pre-production is everything from the concept and writing a script all the way up until the day or the minute before you start rolling the camera. That is the idea of pre-production. What's, what's weird is that I think what, what messes people up, because it messed me up for a little while, is the fact that you'd imagine that, technically speaking, that's still production. Yeah. So the uh, the prefix kind of messes with your thought process on that. At least it, it did to me for a while. Yeah. A lot of people don't really think of the steps right before rolling camera as anything other than just production. Well, yeah, because it's easy to get into that get into the thought of, well, I'm working on it, so obviously I'm producing something, so this is production, right? Yeah. But as far as the terms of film, uh, pre-production is basically everything except when an actor is doing their job. <laughs> That's kind of the, the biggest thing, is when the rehearsals, the, the script writing, the hiring of cast, hiring of crew, hiring of location scouts and all those, and everything that a production designer does or an art director that is almost all pre-production so let's just go over step by step starting from conceptualization until the first time a camera rolls on set 
Okay. That's not an EPK, which is electronic press kit, behind the scenes type stuff. That no, is, no, that's a whole different thing. That is all three, all wrapped into one. So if you're an EPK specialist, you know, cool. Uh, you work a lot. <laughs> and nobody knows what you are. Congratulations. I know I don't. But you're a writer there, James. Yeah, I like to fancy myself as writing, yes. All right. Well, the first step in any pre-production is the script. So this is, let's hypothetically say this movie we're making is super low budget and it starts with a writer that has an idea as all good stories should should not forming a company and then going we should write something this one is the guy has an idea has no idea what to do and then decides i'm going to write a script that is step one writing the script usually you get that first draft that you think is great it's about 15 to 50 pages over over long and really poorly edited and, and just confusing your your first draft is never your best no never it's not it usually it's not even good my current script that i'm writing i'm in my seventh or eighth iteration of it and it's nowhere near being done and i've got i've got a couple basically novels that i'm doing and trust me even just looking back it's like oh i need to improve that i need to change that and i'm not even close to being finished with them but I don't want to focus on that because that's the other thing is you don't want to focus on constantly revising while you're still writing it. You yeah. need to get the idea out, then you can go back and fix it. That's yeah. that's the big problem I've found. I get to 90% and go, mm, I have no idea where this is going. I'm going to rewrite it. <laughs> and I never finish it until I like completely... Oh, this is where my script is going, and I, I finish it that way. But yeah, it everyone's everyone's got their their yeah. style. That that sounds like an absolute headache to me. Oh so. my god, it sucks. <laughs> like I will get so much work done on something and then go, I hate this. Next thing. All right, then. So there's that, and then once you have at least a, a decent one. Yeah, once you have your tenth to fifteenth to you know fiftieth revision of your script, uh, you end up with what's called a shooting script. Or a spec script, depending on where you are. You now get there and you finalize your script and you're like, this is done. Awesome. Here's the options. You can either direct it yourself, which is easier, but for the purpose of this, let's say you go and find a friend who's a director. This is where the director comes in. Uh, quite often the director and the writer are the same person. But if they're but not, you're he's the director's basically the next step. Yeah. The director, or if you want money... Producer, but let's say <laughs> let's, you're let's, smart. Let's no, let's not go. Let's not go over. Yeah, that. let's say you're smart and you go with a director first. You immediately go to a director, say a friend of yours, just so it's not like a long yeah, arduous process. Yeah, let's not get this yeah. complicated. Yeah. So you go to a friend who's a director, and the director reads the script and goes, "Awesome, I want to make these little changes. Changes some things here and there. That's normal. That happens. Well, the other thing is that I found that me doing writing for a novel is very different from what I know." would happen with a script because of how the different media works. Yeah. Yeah, and even that, if the novel's made, and then you decide, I want to make a, a script out of this, scriptwriter comes in. Things are going to change because yeah. it's a visual media versus reading. Yeah. So the director then goes through and makes what's called a director notebook. This is the Bible of the film. Okay, so what does that actually entail? Is it all the thought process behind every shot, essentially? Yeah. They go through the script um, and break it down into scenes. 
and there's sequences, there's scenes, there's acts, and I'm not. We're not going to get into. No, no, we can, we can say that for that. we can say that for another time. That could be a really cool. The director notebook is a fascinating little thing. But it actually does sound very interesting. Yeah, I've always loved doing director's notebooks, but then actually dealing with people I hate. So you know, yeah, maybe I love making maybe we can find an online one and just yeah. kind of rip it and then go through it. That would actually be really interesting. But again, yeah. later, later, later. But the director notebook is breaking up each of the scenes. And any scenes that are in the same location, say you jump back and forth through different locations, something like Breaking Bad, Walter White's house, if there's like five scenes in his house throughout the entire episode, then, you know, you want to shoot all those at the same time, so you end up... Oh yeah, c- condensing yeah. and making sure making everything easier so you're not bouncing back and forth. Yeah. So a director notebook, you go through and find out, okay, what sets would you need, what locations... And then ultimately you start doing storyboards. This is where a storyboard artist can come in if you have more of a budget. Let's stick with just director at this moment. Yeah, yeah. So the director goes through and decides on his shots what he thinks would be a good way to capture the story of this script. So then after he gets his director notebook done, first person he usually goes to, again, if he's smart, is they find a cinematographer that can then capture those images that he has on his storyboards into an actual film. Cinematographer, also known as a director of photography, is in charge of all the camera, lighting, and any way to manipulate light. Okay, I know that you're a big proponent of a good cinematographer, and it definitely, it it can definitely help. I'll admit, as a layman, I don't necessarily notice it. I notice when there's a bad one. Yeah. But is that kind of the point? Uh, The cinematographer... If he's like an artist, like someone like Roger Deakins, who did Skyfall, and he's done a whole bunch of other type... You, you've recognized Roger Deakins. I think he might have done Blade Runner 2049, but not possible that. But the best cinematographers are the ones that you look at a shot and say, that is a beautiful shot. Oh, kind of like uh, with the recent one, Ad Astra. Ad Astra, yeah. Because uh, all those shots were like, they were gorgeous. Yeah, and someone had to figure out you know, how to frame that and how to light it. A lot of people give animated movies crap, but they have cinematographers as well. They, I, I'd almost say it's a little more important. Yeah. They're, they're not called cinematographers. They're digital camera something or other, but they're cinematographers. Yeah, they are cinematographers. They're director of photography. And that's where the director and the cinematographer basically design the look of the film in this step. Oh, also for clarity of information? Yeah. Uh, you want to be able to tell your story with the least amount of dialogue, and that's where a good cinematographer will be able to tell that story, and a good director will make the characters able to tell that story. Ah. Cinematographer deals with all of the tech side, except sound. The sound and cinematography are two. Oh, so different. it's a cinematographer that I can blame for the first Thor having so many Dutch angles. Yeah, pretty, pretty much. <laughs> I've worked on a couple of films that the director dictated the Dutch angles and the cinematographer just hated it. But yeah, that's, that's the, that's sometime on the director. That's, yeah. no, it kind of depends on. Yeah. Cause I knew that was, it was an important job because, well, you obviously have to figure out how to frame it, but I, I, I never, we never really discussed exactly how that went about. Yeah. Uh, the two, there are three big onset people. Director. director. Everyone knows about hands that. down the director. Two is the cinematographer. And three is what's called the production designer. We'll get to the production designer in a little bit. Yeah. Uh, that's the job that I quite often like to do. But 
Uh, at this point, when you have a director, a cinematographer, and potentially a storyboard artist that have ma- made your awesome storyboards. Yeah, yeah. Um, Oscar Wright, Edgar Wright's brother, did all the storyboards for um, Scott Pilgrim and World's End. and Whoever the guy did yeah. for Mad Max, Fury Road. Yeah. I mean, I, oh, I haven't watched yeah. the movie, but I've seen the storyboards, and my God. Oh, yeah. The storyboards for Fury Road are absolutely gorgeous. If you want a good example of storyboards... Fury Road. Up Fury Road. Great. Like I said, I haven't even watched it, but I saw the story bar, so I was like, oh my god. Yeah. But from here, you have a director's notebook. You have storyboards. You have a really cool idea. You have a good script. Now is when you get funding. Ah, uh, so when you've basically got everything, what's yeah. it? We just need people. Yeah. At this point, you're like, we need money. We need to figure out how to make this movie. Quite often, the money comes first and when you're in a studio environment, but, you know. This is hypothetical. We're talk- this is where it's the way it should be. We're talking. Okay, you're coming from that from an artistic standpoint. Yeah. While I understand, they're also okay. it's also real easy to say that money going for money is not a horrible thing. Yeah, but I completely understand and even kind of agree with what you're saying. Yeah, I will put that. I'm just going to put that out there. Yeah, and this is where you then go. Okay, how much money would we need to be able to make this movie? And that's where, okay, correct me if I'm wrong, that's where either people underestimate or overestimate. Uh, this is where everyone almost, if we're talking independent, you are universally underestimating how much money this is going to take. Now, yeah. if you're in Hollywood and you have, like, unlimited amount of money, overestimating it and throwing too much money at a smaller project is where you end up with something like Transformers 5. Where it's just way too much spectacle and not They made story. a five? No. Yeah, last night. Where, oh, yeah. The problem I've found is that sometimes, like with un, with Under, I've found that every so often you can just kind of ignore the problems because you see the potential and what it could have been. Although, obviously, there are, t- there are songs where it's like they did not have enough money for this. <laughs> that one uh, practical effect one comes to mind. The... Other the, the on the on the flip side though with over, like you said, it's more it's more spectacle. They'll they'll do stuff that they don't need to do. One of the more overproduced shows instead of movies is uh, Sherlock. Yeah, there's a couple things in there that they they just toss money at, and as a result, I think that I think that Sherlock is an overproduced piece of crap. I personally I love Sherlock, but I can see where you're coming from. It's a weird line. Yeah, I think the one that's even worse as far as TV goes is uh, Game of Thrones. The first season, they had a budget, but they worked with it, and they found creative ways to get around not having as much budget as they end up having in the final seasons. The final seasons, they got lazy with the writing and just used special effects to cover it up. And that's where the budget is kind of an issue. Yeah, it. people always say that more money is better, but sometimes it kind of... Having the option of more money, but having a director that knows not to try to use that money, just to use the money. What's that? <laughs> Spielberg. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you look at Jaws. He didn't have a whole lot of budget, but he somehow made one of the best monster horrors ever made. He and, barely had a budget on that. And the man, even when he does get a big budget, tries hard not to use it. Yeah, it seems. He, and he throws his own money in if he really needs to. That's where... Spielberg, as a producer, loves an idea, throws enough money for them to be able to make it, and like gets the movie made, whether it's great or not. He still wants everyone to make movies. Yeah, so. but so okay, so that's that's where the budget coming in. Hopefully, <laughs> you get something prop- appropriate for what yeah. you're doing. 
So if you're doing like a small romantic comedy, you don't need three hundred million dollars like an Avatar or Lord of the Rings trilogy. You don't even need a million. Yeah, honestly, you, I'd say for a, a decent romantic comedy nowadays, five million is kind of where you need to cap it. <laughs> this is also with no yeah. knowledge of the of the thing, which is why we're doing this, yeah. but. Even that sounds too much, Devin. Yeah. Uh, I've worked on a couple of smaller short film or smaller budget films like Family Weekend, Detention of the Dead. They each had about a million to five million. And I'm like, okay, not really sure where the hell all that money went, but they turned out pretty decent. <laughs> but cocaine. Yeah. And then something like uh, da- or, uh, Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice. That is a 200 and something million dollar movie. And, and yet. And you're like, well, there's a lot of CG in there, and yeah, okay. There's that. That also had a lot of problem in just in pre-production because that had a lot of production, or that had just a lot of problems in every level of production. Yeah. All right but, then. So, so yeah, you've you got, got your, your you've got your producer. the The way to get financing is you find a producer or you find investors. But that's what a producer does. The producer, and this is one of the most popular and notable people on set is they are the money. They're the wallet. They are the wallet. Uh, Quite often you have the actual money holders and then the producer is the middleman saying, yes, you can use that money. No, you can't. Okay. So producers keep you on budget. So real quickly, what's the difference between a producer and an executive producer? Uh, Executive producer, either a puts more money in or B is there because he needs money on the back end. And that we'll get into the money on the back end and when we get into post production. Absolutely. And absolutely. Let's say basically but, it says like he's the guy with the bigger wallet. Yeah. Um you quite often again, you quite often see Spielberg as an executive producer because he's like the one that's pushing to get this movie made. Whereas a producer itself is kind of the one that's like actively holding the reins. Holding the reins, saying no, we don't have that much money. We have that much money. They're you, the the budgeters. Kind of, kind of yeah. thing. It's like, can we do this cheaper? Yeah. Which I'm not gonna lie, it's good to have that. Yeah, it's good to have someone checking you once in a while instead of just throwing all of the money into one scene with a million extras and. Yeah. Now, of course, there's of also the, there's also that flip side of you don't want them holding the reins too tight, but yeah. more often than not, or else you, you end up with uh, bad CGI and Gemini Man. Anyway, we'll get to that when we talk about Gemini Man. But, so. Yeah. Then you have the associate producers, which are there, but may or may not have any any real power. Associate, yeah. regular producer, executive producer. There's your levels. Yeah. Executive producer, Dick Wolf. Anyway, pretty much. But from there, you now have money. You have, you have producer. You have money. You have director, cinematographer. Usually by now, you get a production designer. And... This is where you get above-the-line people. So above-the-line is anyone that is a power holder. Director, cinematographer, mentioned production designer, producers, and what's called an assistant director, or the first AD. The first AD is the, the slave driver on set. It's the one that is, we have a time frame to maintain. You're going to do it this way. We're going to go. These are our shots for today. Get it done. You know, they're okay, there for time what the producer is for the wall. Yeah. The the assistant director is keep going, get everything done, boom, boom, boom. You need to be here. They're the logistics. Ah. They are the they are also quite often the one that'll take over if the director has to miss a day for whatever reason. Has an appointment, gets shot. Overstressed. 
overstressed, the assistant director is the one that steps in and corrals everyone together and say, okay, you know what you're doing, you know what you're doing, you know what you're doing, do it, let's go. That's what the assistant director does. Okay. Uh, the assistant director has a whole tree of like second ADs, but we won't really get much into the assistant director until. No, no, much. this I want. I'd, I'd like this just be the, the basic breakdown. So yeah. I guess the the big thing is once you get funding, what's the first what's the first thing you go for? Crew, I'd imagine. Uh usually, uh, when you crew up, you already have your cinematographer, director, and so on. Uh, one of the biggest ones you need to get is a production designer. Uh, also known as an art director, but quite often you'll end up with both a production designer and an art director. Production designer is in charge of everything that is visually on screen except for the physical actors. So props. Um, props and stage? Props, props sets. Uh, makeup usually falls under the art department here. Um, this is just collectively the art department. Wow. Yeah. Production designer has a lot of jobs. Production designer is the top. Is art also, director is, is the... Is that also why they tend to have a, a production designer and an art director? Yeah. Okay. So production designer is the one that is brought in earliest, usually with a cinematographer. Uh, cinematographer figures out the camera, where to put the camera, where to put the lights, where to put shadows and all that. That is what the cinematographer does. The production designer is brought in to make sure that everything on in the physical frame is designed in a way that makes sense. So, for example, in something like Marie Antoinette, which has beautiful costumes, beautiful makeup. Realistic for what they're doing, in other words. Yeah, beautiful locations. The production designer is in charge of all of that. Oh, so they're they're responsible for kind of the feel? The production designer is in charge of making sure that everything works and fits. Aesthetics, then? Aesthetics, yeah. Um, So, makeup artists... Quite often work under the production designer. Sometimes are, are separate if you have a lot of special effects. We'll get to special but still. effects. But production designer um, has makeup, costumers, set designers, prop masters, prop designers, if you have multiple people. Uh, special effects, uh, quite often stunts are kind of brought into there if you need to hide stunt work. Uh, um, and then, uh, like animals and that kind of stuff kind of end up there as well because they're considered props. But, you know, I guess they're not wrong. Yeah, they're... Even babies can sometimes be considered props. That's weird, but still. Oh, are you talking about American Sniper? Uh, no, I was more <laughs> thinking... Um, I was more thinking the the baby from Game of Thrones, but... Okay. No, no, I was thinking that plastic baby. Oh, yeah. That makes there me laugh. be the digital baby in Twilight 4 or whatever. Yeah. 4 or 5, whatever that one is. That's but yeah, a lot so the of people. Production though. designer. Ultimately, there's the art department, the camera department, the lighting department, sound department, and then the like the logistics, so the the ADs. And do they do each department kind of have a head? Yeah. The head of the art department, production designer. Or art art director, who is quite often that sec like the right hand. The one that is... The assistant director to the director, essentially. Yeah. Uh, the art director goes off and like actually budgets the art department, whereas the production designer is the one that's in charge of keeping everything aesthetically pleasing, huh. or aesthetically the way it needs to be done. Yeah. So something like Blade Runner, where all of the, the stuff on set is cyberpunk costuming, cyberpunk cell phones, cyberpunk... 
trash on the ground. Oh All of that is production department. You could specialize in so many different fields. Oh yeah. That's that's daunting, but it's also very interesting. Yeah. Cause you could you could have two two production designers and come with two very different backgrounds. Oh, yeah. That's incredible actually. Yeah. And that's where the production designer is one of the least when it when you're talking about low budget film, it's the least known position. Because a lot of directors just go, oh, I can just shoot with my friends in the backyard or shoot over here. Whereas a production designer would be the one to come in and be like, can we move that picture frame so it's not directly behind their head? And like, they are kind of the ones that are moving around the sets. Continuity? Speaking. Continuity is when we, we'll get into continuity and That's production. script supervisor when we get into production. Got it. Okay. The script supervisor is hired right around now to break down the script and know kind of the script inside and out. No, the beats. Yeah, because the script supervisor, who's brought in and usually is doing their own thing now, uh, before production starts, before shooting starts, because they need to know that in this scene, there's a cup sitting on the desk, and in seven scenes that we're shooting two weeks from now, there needs to be a cup sitting on that desk. That kind of stuff is all the script Oh my God. <laughs> when you see levels and drinks change... Like someone drinking a wine glass and it goes from barely full to full to barely full. That's script supervisor. That's production. We'll get into that. Yeah, next week. But, that's that's insane though. Yeah. But who needs who is the one that needs to figure out what's in that glass and what that glass is? That's production designer. <laughs> that is a prop master, most particularly. That is <sighs> production designer, much like a director surrounds themselves with people that know their job. So a prop master is anything that is physically touched by an actor. That is a prop master's job to figure out, like, is this a styrofoam cup? Is the person holding a mug? They're holding a mug. What's on the mug? Are they going to be smashing it so it needs to be made out of this versus this? Do you need multiple versions of it? Like, if someone hits someone over the head, you want, like, six copies of that just in case they mess up the first take. How hard do you make them so that it's realistic versus yeah. versus safe? And yeah, that's all that's all a prop master's job. Wow. Yeah, and has been worked as a prop master multiple times. It's daunting, and sometimes you go onto a set and they give you like one day to collect all these, and it's like, oh, okay, I could have used a week, but all right. But you need to know how many rings someone has. If someone has a ring that they take off and throw at somebody. You need to make sure that you have multiple copies in case they break that ring. Yeah. It, pre-production for the art department is some of the most crucial. fulfilling and brutally like difficult stuff. But it also seems the most crucial. Oh, yeah. Uh, besides like getting cameras and knowing everything you have and need for the camera department, which will fill out what the camera department is doing at this point pretty quick here, but this is when the art department goes into overdrive. They go from cool, here's all of our storyboards and here's what the, the cool concepts are to sitting in a room for like a week deciding how they're going to do everything. It brings yeah. to mind just hearing that breakdown, I already knew it intellectually, but it just brings the scope of something like the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Yeah, the uh, the production designer whose name I can't remember off the top of my oh, head. Oh, you're going to hate yourself. I know. I know the guy's face because he's the guy that works at Weta uh, but continue, continue. Yeah, the production designer of Lord of the Rings, 
he had armorers, and that's another set or another group of people that on a bigger budget you get armorers that are in charge of all weaponry and all armor on a set. That's so all the spears, all the chainmail, all the helmets, all the, the pikes, all the swords, all the daggers, all the bows, all the arrows. Every all every have link to be, of every chainmail. Yeah. They literally made all of that out of PVC pipes that they hand cut and then painted silver. Dan Henna. Yeah, Dan Henna. Oof. He deserved his Oscar. Yeah. Honestly, you could we could almost do a breakdown using Lord of the Rings for yeah. it because that way they they made that movie like a low budget movie, and that's why it still fits. That's the insane bit. Yeah, the Peter for, Jackson for, for what they it. did, the budget they had was phenomenally low. Yeah, and they were able to make it for three hundred million, which sounds like a lot, but remind remember they made three three hour movies, each at a hundred million dollars piece. And considering which is that very low, and considering that three hundred million nowadays gets you an Infinity War, yeah. which very good, but that's one movie. Yeah. And well, an Avatar. Is, yeah. The scope is just insane. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's so, all art that department. That is all art department. Uh, for example, in Lord of the Rings Two Towers, when uh Aragorn kicks the helmet into the burning pile of bodies, that's all art department. Oh man. He also broke his foot. That's not art department, that's a medic. That's unset stuff. <laughs> but well. that whole body of or pile of burning bodies. The smoking pile, yeah. They had to figure out how to light that pile on fire, how, like, what that head is going to be made out of. That's all To keep it smoldering, but not yeah. outrageous. But not, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, that is all product. That is all art department. That is all a prop master figuring out what that head's going to be made out of. That is a set decorator, set designer, on-set dresser, figuring out how to get that those body pile to burn. That is a production designer figuring out that whole area. All the trampled dirt around it had to be trampled by somebody. Not just they didn't just bring a horse and they brought a bunch of PAs and PAs we'll get to when we're on production. But oh my yeah. word, yeah, there's a lot going on behind the scenes of a film that not a whole lot of people think about, and that's where then we get into makeup. All of one Doug Jones who plays. A whole bunch of people in Guillermo del Toro movies, makeup. That man, I he puts himself through oh, torture. Yeah. Oh yeah, but when you go into a makeup and in pre-production here, the makeup artist has to figure out, okay, so this character is going to be all makeup. Well, I have to make all of his his prosthetics now going into production, so they're ready and willing. So you get life casts, like molding of heads, molding of bodies. So you can kind of make all of the makeup early and before the production starts. Yeah, and that's where you that's where you get the, the six hours to put on and to put on yeah. people sometimes. Because the spirit gum doesn't immediately dry. You need to have it sit there, then you have to do makeup, you have to fill seams, you have to do all that. That's its own thing. That mostly is production, but you oh, yeah, need to do still, a it, whole lot of it pre too. To figure out the best way. So yeah. Uh we're at the point where the art department is fully ramping up, and if you have enough time, the art department can make just about anything. Uh, I have seen, nuts. I have seen someone completely strip out a house in a week and re- completely revitalize a house in a week. Uh, we did that on family weekend. We completely pulled apart a derelict school, repainted every locker by hand, 
And then after shooting in the in that for two days, we then tore apart the entire school and beat the crap and threw blood everywhere for a zombie film. That was all art department. So well, and again to to hammer on the point, everything with Lord of the Rings. Yep. The time they were given to do all of that, mm-hmm. and it shows now. They had a year or so of pre-production for the art department. And it still, it, I'm sure it felt at the time like still not enough. Oh, yeah. Uh, they were still doing it while they were while they were shooting stuff in one side of New Zealand. They were still building Hobbiton. Like, they were still oh, building Hobbiton. God. They were building parts of Osgiliath. They were building all these things. And that's where, at this point, the producer now gets a location uh, location scout to try to figure out where the hell are we shooting these. What well, works for yeah. it. While the art department is figuring out their plan, you get a location scout. You get, yeah, the location scout then goes out and goes, okay, so we need a gas station. What well, gas station? You know, they start talking to gas stations. Hey, can we pull permits? Can we shoot here in these days? And then you get schedulers. The logistics of yeah. when to shoot. So when and your, where. Your first AD, your producers, and your location scout start locking down your shoot days. Hopefully a month from now, so you have a month to get all your stuff. But quite often, a couple of days from now, we're shooting at this this <laughs> we, gas station. We're doing it here we're doing it here next week. Get to work. I've had that and that's terrible. But it's like, oh yeah, by the way, we're shooting at this hotel. You need to make it not look like hostel three. Like, oh god damn it. But you get the idea. Location scouts doing their thing for the next week, locking down locations, getting a studio. You get a studio to build sets, to build, to shoot, controlled lighting and all that. Great. Very pricey. <laughs> Isn't it usually? Oh, yeah. Everything's pricey when it comes to this kind of stuff. It doesn't, is it doesn't help when you get people who, who know that it's also expensive and still try to gouge you. Yeah. But at this point, we've gone over our department. We've gone over the basic budgeting, the what the cinematographer himself does. But we haven't really talked about what the cinematographer's team does. Cinematographer, on a low-budget film, can also be the one in charge of lighting, in charge of masking off parts of the set so that they're not lit, is in charge of the camera and charge of the lenses. But let's boost up the, uh, the budget just slightly so he has a team. He's not the only one on the camera and the lights. First person he gets, camera technician or camera operator. Obviously. Obviously. Usually the camera operator is also the one that does the lenses, but let's say he has even more of a team. Camera operator, then you get the first AC, or first assistant camera, who's in charge of the slate. You know, the clapper, the take one, mark two, yeah, yeah. that kind of stuff. That's the first AC. Wow. Also the first AC, usually the lens technician, could also be a different person. Sometimes lens technician and lenses themselves. Depending on the film. Depending on the film, depending on the camera, the lens technician is one of, or the lenses are some of the most expensive parts of the set. And you wouldn't think it. We're talking $5,000 for one lens. That hurts me, Devin. Yeah, I know. That, yeah. That is bad. That suddenly, but, that suddenly un- un- makes me understand exactly why those high-end cameras can be a fifth of the price of a good yeah. lens. Yeah. The cameras themselves, sure, great, but you can't see anything if you don't have a lens. And at this point, cinematographer brings in camera operator, lenses, lens technicians. If they ever want to move the camera, like like have someone moving through a crowd, you then get a uh, steady cam operator. 
and at this point, your study cam operator are going to be rehearsing the movements for the shoot. Let's say in a week. I can think of a couple things. Yeah. Uh, some of the best movies, like Children of Men, has some amazing Steadicam operation near the end of that. For whatever else of the movie, the uh, Tony Jaw the Protector. Yeah. That giant that, four that minute long, one. continuous shot, Steadicam operation. Okay, real quick, just a slight divergence. What's yeah. what's the difference between a setup for Steadicam, the the hand stuff like the found footage, or shaky cam? So the idea of Steadicam is you are. You have one guy with a camera on, like, usually a gimbal or an arm attached to their chest that they're running around after the action, and it's very smooth, but doesn't have any shake to it. Because it's it attached kind of, to the thorax? So to yeah, your, and it's, to your... it has usually, like, some kind of gyroscopic, like, stabilization on it, if ah. it's a higher-end steady cam. Otherwise, you have a really good camera operator that doesn't shake the camera. Uh, something like handheld quite often isn't actually handheld. Um, something like uh, Rack or Cloverfield or... Blair, Blair Witch. You Blair Witch was probably handheld. But yeah, but you know exactly what I'm talking yeah. about. But something like Cloverfield, which was a fake handheld camera movie, um, most likely, again, another steady cam, but they're purposely moving the camera around slightly. To get they're, not, they're, they're not being as careful as yeah. it were. They're moving a little bit too far, and they're moving back, and that kind of stuff. And Shaky Cam has more of that, but also, isn't there a lot of stuff in uh, post-production that messes with it? Shaky Cam... When you actually look at the shots themselves, are not all that shaky. It is the editing almost completely that makes it shaky cam. Okay. Um, it's rapid cutting, and that's when we get into editing and post production. Uh, I just wanted to make certain yeah. from here where yeah. it was because I knew the setups had to be a little different. Yeah. And then you have the ones with the big sweeping camera movements that you see. For example, like something like 300 is a perfect example where it starts on one side and the camera perfectly tracks with Leonidas until he hits somebody. While zooming out. I mean, whatever yeah. you whatever you just want to say about Snyder, he got someone good from oh, that yeah. because, oh my God. Oh, yeah. That is called a dolly. <laughs> a dolly is oh, yeah. basically a skateboard on a track. It's like those little, those little pushed uh, rail cars you yeah. see. <laughs> and surprisingly, there's a lot of things that just use that kind of stuff. But, hey, it works. But yeah, uh, at this point, you need to know if you need a dolly. Dollies can be expensive, like if you get a fish, what's called a Fisher dolly. At least when I was in school, it was called a Fisher dolly. I don't know if they've made new stuff since. Probably. But very heavy, uh, reduces a lot of camera shake and movement that you don't want. But it it moves along with the action. It can push forward while you're zooming out to create a zolly, a zolly shot like Vertigo and yeah, that kind of stuff. That but, weird one that kind of makes you yeah. feel but off. At, but at this time... You need to figure out if you need this equipment going into production. So you can have it and you're not scrambling for yeah. it. And that's where you then have to get a dolly or a dolly grip. Uh, we'll get into the grips here very quick, but you hire a dolly grip that knows how to use the dollies, knows how to do all that. And you also get a second AC, a second assistant camera that is in charge of tripods, which is in charge of like making sure all these kind of things are, are moved along with the camera. The camera sitting on a tripod is not going to move. Maybe pans or like up and down or tilts or that kind of stuff. But you'll need to know, do you need a different head so you can do a Dutch angle like so many damn horror movies do? Do you need one to be able to slightly move the camera? Do you need to be able to go around Clive Owen's face like in Gemini Man? That's a whole thing. 
flip upside down. Yeah, flip upside down, like in Stranger Things. Black That's, Panther comes to mind. Black Panther. There's so many movies that do that kind of stuff, or TV shows. That's all of those need to be figured out in pre-production. <sighs> yeah. Wow. You know, the more we go, the more I wonder how do good movies actually get made? Uh persistence and people that know what they're doing. After a while, if you know what you're doing, you know that this is the next step. And once the first time through, those got to be yeah. overwhelming. Oh my god, it is. But at this point, you now have your cinematographer and production, aka the director of photography, in charge of a big group of people that are each doing their job and getting ready for their job. Uh, we've gone over the camera. There's also the lighting department, uh, headed by the gaffer. The gaffer is in charge of lighting. The gaffer is in charge of lighting and shadows. They need to know what kind of lights to get, what kind of gels to get to put certain colors in front of the lights. For example, like if you need a red light on the left side of the face, blue light on the right side, if you want to be super like stylistic, they need to know what kind of gels, what kind of diffusion, what kind of scrims, what kind so of... So they're the contrast. Sobos. Yeah, they're the ones that are figuring out lighting at this point. You also have flags and shadows and scrims that go over to block light from certain parts. You can't just blast a light into a room where it'll look like you're on the moon. Blast light, put a, a shadow to the left of the thing so the background doesn't look blown out as well. And then if you mess up yours, the set in the back looks terrible. So that's all, again, on production Lighting, lighting is 100% underrated, I think. Oh, yeah. Even... Or as a production designer, I forget how long it takes to light. But once you get the lights up, you don't need to call for lights. Once the lights are done, they're set. They can go off and smoke in the corner and do nothing for the next four hours. Let's just say that art department and lighting people don't really get along. I wonder why. Because art department's doing about four hours of work and the lighting guys have already finished for, for a few hours. So, Jeez. But, yeah, it's... But... Lighting guys, the gaffers are the ones that are in charge of the lights. The grips are the ones that are in charge of the C-stands and hold the flags and hold the sh hold the scrims and all that. They're kind of the... Uh, the two are complements of each other. Gaffers are lights, grips are darkness. And then you have the camera. Which makes sense because they're called grips. Yeah. Uh, grips are also the ones that usually bring in the dolly tracks. They bring in the dolly, that kind of stuff. That's why it's called a dolly grip. Yeah, because they're handling equipment. Yeah. yeah. They're a lot of the grips and gaffers do a lot of their jobs on production, but you need to know what you need going into the movie. Yeah, yeah. So, so at this time you hire all of your all of that. Also, at this time you hire a casting director. First time I've mentioned any kind of cast because cast is almost always, except if you have a big name like if you, if you have a Ben Affleck and you know it's a Ben they're Affleck. They're like five. They're like yeah. five percent of the movie. Yeah, almost. Yeah, this. At this time, you're like, okay, I need to now cast this movie. And it's also it's also why I've started realizing what you mean by you getting you being able to get past actors, yeah, or bad acting, because there's so much else going on in this movie. <laughs> like, if it's good movie, yes, yeah. Like say if say if Brad Pitt wasn't amazing in Ad Astra, everything else in the movie is just as amazing as it was. I'd be okay with the movie still. Oh, it so wouldn't you're be as gravity. Good. Yeah, like gravity. I'm not a like the acting in gravity was fine, but 
not amazing, but the technical aspect of every other part of that movie. Yeah, we've said before that I, that that first sequence, I was oh, just yeah. transfixed yeah. because of how gorgeous it was. Yeah, and that's where a whole lot of movies get by on on their visuals. But if, if something else is off, it kind of shows, and it, it yeah yeah. So yeah, now now we're actually looking into hiring people. Yeah, and let's not go with big names. Let's not let's not get into yeah. that muddy water. Yeah, if you have a big like a big character or a big actor, they've already been cast. They were cast before the script was written. Like, if you want to make a movie for Brad Pitt and he wants to make a movie with you, well, okay, time to make a script, I guess. So, yeah, that's, so. yeah. But at this point, you have all the gear, you have all the sets being being built. It's a month before the shoot. You're already building sets. You're already got all your gear. You got your costumes being made. Your makeup's being made or being set up your special effects makeup and all that that's all being worked on and done now is the time to cast now is the time to figure out okay i want these three people in my movie that's the casting director's job is that we have a 25 year old latino female latina female that we need to cast and then you have your auditions you have your Casting, hunt, all of that goes on now. Okay, actually, that that kind of brings me to an interesting point because I know that the person that that did the script, they've got ideas and yeah. uh, and director, of course, they've all all probably uh, collaborated on what they want way before this, oh. but they've all got ideas. But how do you get those ones that just that that wasn't what the what they thought they wanted, and then just blow the, an audition out of the water? How? Uh, something like something like that doesn't happen nearly as often as you think. But I I know it happens, but I I I I would like to say that I don't know how. I don't really have an how often that happens. You hear about it, I know that much, but yeah, you hear about people like uh, Anya Taylor Joy for The Witch. Mm-hmm. She was the first person that the director um director casted, and was like the very first audition that he watched was just this this girl's perfect. Apparently was not at all what he was originally looking for. Uh, it changes the changes where you're going with some parts, but it doesn't really change the script. No, because uh, uh, one of the ones that always that sticks out to me is when they look for something. James Cameron picked out Robert Patrick for the yeah. the T1000 because his audition was just him staring intently into the camera for five minutes. Yeah, and something like that. You all of a sudden get a completely different person. You have to rearrange some stuff. And depending on probably T2, most likely they hadn't started making costumes. They hadn't started doing all this without casting him. Low budget, you want to... You want to get... Oh, okay. So that's the difference between low budget and higher budget. Higher budget, you can get the cast before necessarily starting. Usually you already have cast lined up before a lot of stuff is made. But low budget... You want to one get of the last stuff ones. made? They're one of the last yeah. ones. Yeah. And quite often in low budget, it is that casting is first. And then it's like, oh, the rest of the movie. So now the actors are waiting around for like two months. Which, which you don't want. You don't want. You don't want actors. You don't want actors not like acting. Acting. But you do want to get them early so that they have rehearsal time. They can know their lines and do all that. So, so what, what would you say? About three, four weeks? Yeah, three, four weeks is Probably pretty good. Um, if you have a really professional actor, you can give them a week and they'll have it all down immediately. But you want to give them a little, little bit more time. If there's stunts Courtesy, involved, yeah. much earlier. 
if there's training involved, like Thor. Uh, he did nine months of training. Or yeah, like five. Like he, I think he said five months beforehand, and then four while doing yeah. whilst while doing some shooting, like that kind of stuff, or anything from with the the two raid movies. Yeah, they were training for like a year. Yeah, you're gonna want to know your movie. If it's a martial arts movie, you need your your stunt coordinator, your your fight people. You also need your cast your cast soon. early. Get them doing their thing. Then get everybody. John Wick. So all of those, yeah. you need to get them early. But yeah. if you're doing like a low budget romantic, say, comedy. romantic comedy, not going to be a whole lot. You, you're going to want to get your two leads so they know what they're doing early. And if they are, they have chemistry. Yeah. If they don't have chemistry, you're going to hammer some chemistry into them because you don't want to recast them. Kind of thing, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, you're now there. You've Hopefully your location scout has gotten permits to start building stuff and all that. Let's say yes, just for Let's the sake of Let's say yes. Let's say your location scout knows what they're doing and not like, I think I did, and then you get kicked out and arrested. Uh, but, yeah, we're at the point where you have your cast, you have your cameras, you have your your sets, your props, your makeup. Now that you have cast, you can fine-tune your makeup. You have tons of rehearsal and camera tests with different makeup. It's amazing how often the makeup when you're looking at it, doesn't look right, but then when put under lights, it does. Because the the tint of the makeup on someone's face could completely change when you put it under lights. The two that stick out to me that I always remember when, when stuff like that, Hellboy. Yeah. And Mystique. Yep. Those the are the those lose very particular color because otherwise it is blown out. That or is such a unique fake. color, but yeah. it, it it and I'm talking about uh what was it, Rebecca Romain? Yeah, I'm talking about her because that was like perfect. Yeah. The the red of her hair and the blue of her skin with the the, the yellow eyes, like everything. Or it looked real. Nightcrawler next two. Nightcrawler next yeah. two. Like they looked real. Like I yeah. could reach out and touch them, and they would be a person. Yeah. And Hellboy, it's like Perlman looked like he was he was just a big red guy. Yeah. And it's amazing. I don't want to even think about how much had to go into that. See that also, uh, you mentioned Hellboy, Doug Abe Jones, Sapien. Abe Sapien, yeah, oh, the creature from Shape of Water, you know, the pale man in uh, Pan's Labyrinth, the uh, fawn in Pan's Labyrinth. All of that had to be made in pre-production, so they have makeup for him. At that time, they knew that he was cast. They had done life casts of him. They had all of his stuff early. So. But yeah, it, well, for, for the, the fawn and the yeah. pale man, they kind of had to. Yeah. But it's like, all that stuff, it's like, you don't think about that unless something yeah. is really exceptional. And even then, you don't give it as much thought as it probably deserves. Yeah. And this is all in pre-production still. You're not even, you haven't rolled anything except maybe a camera test. And that's just to make sure that it's what you want. Yeah. You know, other than the EPK, the the press people go, or the the behind-the-scenes people going around recording everything. Something like Lord of the Rings. Watch the archives for Lord of the Rings, the appendices. They go through all of this perfectly, especially Lord of the Rings 1. It shows them making Hobbiton and carving out holes in the earth so they can make Hobbiton and... Just all of that. The If you haven't watched the making of either Lord of the Rings, 1, 2, and 3, or Peter Jackson's King Kong, they're some of the most fascinating behind-the-scenes looks I've ever seen. Well, I guess I can, I can also ask, is, are they also interesting to a layman? Yeah. they. If you love Lord of the Rings, and most people love Lord of the Rings still, 
Um, go and watch the first appendices. It's long. I'll give you that. But it's as long as the movie, isn't it? It's longer. The appendices are 12 hours long. Okay, then. Three, four hour long documentaries, basically. Wow. Yeah. But it goes step by step of making each movie. And the fact that they shot all three at the same time. And they did pre-production for all three at the same time. That's, that also gave it a real consistent feel. Yeah. That's where Hobbit didn't have the same pre-production time as Lord of the Rings. And it, it tripped. Shows. Yeah, uh, it, it tripped. Plus, too many, too many things changed. They, uh, Jackson set out knowing he was going to do a trilogy for Lord of the Rings. I remember Hobbit got bumped up to a trilogy. The way Hobbit... Peter Jackson didn't do the pre-production. Oh, Guillermo I, del Toro did most of the pre-production. I think that's kind of all you have to say. And then MGM went bankrupt and had problems, so Guillermo del Toro decided, okay, I'm going to do work, work on something else. Bumped off to go and do, I believe it was Crimson Peak or something else. Huh, a del Toro Hobbit. That would have been amazing. And it shows. That would have been interesting. It, it, parts of his take, like the Goblin City he designed. like the that kind of stuff shows. Yeah, that kind of stuff. Was Del Toro. Huh. Peter Jackson then came in with like no time left and had to pick up the movie again. And then That explains so much. He so. then shot too much. The first one came out exactly as he wanted. It shows. The first one was pretty decent. Two and three, he had shot enough to either make one movie that's kind of condensed or two movies that feel a little bit stretched. And he's like, well, I have like four and a half hours. Let's just make two movies. I... Th- I- and I'm going to say I think that was a bad call. It made him money, so <laughs> artistically, I think that was a bad yeah. call. Yeah, and he admits that. So, but yeah, at this time we have all of our cameras set. Hopefully, we have all of our all of our production design, our makeup, costumes, sets, props, Costumes. special effects, props. Uh, that's another thing that if you have a if you have a bat that cracks over someone's head, you need like ten. Stunt bats and one hero bat need a face on the end of a stick so you know so the actors know where to actually look for the CG. Yeah, and this isn't even talking about CG and computer generated yet because you do have a um, a special effects um, a special effects coordinator that comes in and is like, okay, we can do that character in CG. Let's say Gollum or Smog or young Will Smith and Gemini Man, Thanos, Thanos. You know that they're going to be CG. You know that the vision is going to be mostly CG. So now you have to decide, well, how much of this do we do practically? How much do we not do? Figure out the divide. Yeah. Uh, and then you start bringing in special effects coordinator, like technicians that are going to be on set, say, next week when we start filming. That is one of the last things you need. If you can find a way to do it practically, it'll probably end up looking good, but not always. Depending on when you do it, it's a better chance. Uh, the one I always go back to, John Carpenter's The Thing. Yeah. Like, that That was spe- that was practical effects, and because of the time that that man put into doing yep. them, it, it still holds up. Yeah, and that's why in horror, particularly, some of the most well-known names from the horror kind of community are the special effects technicians. Hilariously enough, yeah. You yeah. don't... I don't remember... I don't remember too many directors of horror, but I could probably, if I, if I thought about it, I could probably name a, c- a couple special effects people. Yeah. Like, uh, Greg Nicotero, who does all of Walking Dead and Tom Savini, who did all of, uh, that's a familiar name. Uh, Dawn of the Dead films. Yeah. That's a real familiar name. Yeah. And then you have John Carpenter who did the thing, but Rob Boynton, I believe was the, I believe is Rob Boynton. 
is the um, special. I know effects. it's Rob. I can't remember if his last name was Boyton or if it was pronounced differently, but him. Yeah. That, that, that was like 95% him. And the other guy who did help declined a credit because he didn't want to take away from Boyton. And like those kind of things, if you can do it practically, try it. It'll save you money in the long run. Surprisingly enough, like yeah. good practical effects are still cheaper than crappy CG. Yeah. And, but then if you have like Transformers, you know, you're probably going to need some CG. Yeah. So, but that is for the most part, all of the pre-production, except for your sound guy <laughs> who has the least amount of pre-production where it's just, you're hired. He goes, cool. I have my sound kit and that's it. Well, yeah, actually to come to think of it, unless you you're specifically doing something for that. Most of the sounds under post, isn't it? The sound is almost universally post. Music is always post production, unless you get like something like Baby Driver. Well, that's why I'm talking. That, that's yeah. why I, that's what I said most of the time because we're talking stuff like Edgar Wright and that sort yeah. of thing. Baby Driver. I'm going to guarantee you that they did a lot of pre production with their music. <laughs> they knew all their music ahead of time. They did all of that in pre production. They got all their rights and all that early. I, most movies, most TV don't do that. Yeah, I would be very surprised if they did. If if Agarite didn't do that, yeah. uh, something like I know Thirteen Reasons Why starts with a song. I can't remember the song, but it's in the script that says this song starts. Something like that needs to be cleared in pre-production, but that doesn't happen often. Usually, scripts don't have music cues. That's shooting script. That's later. Uh, huh. The director once they kind of get able to break down the script, the first AD breaks them down the script with them. Then you get a shooting schedule and that's where the AD has been doing this whole time is making the schedule, makes call sheets so that everyone knows when to be on set, when they have what they have to bring, what they're doing for that day, what shots are for that day, who needs to be there, what cast, what, what kind times. of make what kind of condition yeah. the 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 uh, characters need to be in. Yep. That's where the the first AD is setting up the call sheets for each day. And they're the like go to for oh my god what are we doing today? Script supervisor also helps with notes about you know this person needs a cut in their left cheek because they get caught in the scene that we're not shooting for another month. The continuity stuff, yeah. The continuity um, really kicks into gear right before the, the movie starts shooting. Understandably, yeah. Once they're on set, the script supervisor is a law. Whatever the script supervisor says, you listen to them because they're right. Unless they're terrible, in which case, don't listen to them. But yeah, no. If if the person's smart, they're going to get a good supervisor. Yeah. If you get a good su- script supervisor, you're never going to have to worry about it. But you just follow. What are we doing, man? We're doing this. Sweet. Script supervisor is one of the most overlooked jobs on set. Most people just think, "Oh, I I don't need that." And some of the biggest directors, don't I've really learned matter much. I've learned just from having people go over my writing that. Just because I know it doesn't mean that I I remember it all. And more often than not, because I I know it, I will overlook things. Whereas if you got someone whose dedicated job is to do, is to look over that and make sure everything lines up, I'm more likely to believe them. Yeah, you might have had a revision where you deleted this one line and then you referenced that one line later in the script. Uh, that's happened a few in a few of our murder mysteries. Yeah, that that, that does come to mind, doesn't the it? One earlier this year that we did. We had uh, my writing partner and I wrote a script that we had a reference to 
Um, no, I didn't hear him. I was on the other side of the stage. It was set in a, in a film production. Um, I was on the other side of the stage when that happened. I didn't hear them. And then later on in the script, uh, he says, wait, you could hear that, but you couldn't hear their fight earlier? I thought you were on the other side of the stage. We cut out that earlier reference to the stage, the first day, but kept yeah. in the second one because we just didn't think about it. We got into rehearsing in about four or five weeks into rehearsing. Someone mentions, what am I referencing here? And we went, oh, well, crap. I just cut that. We didn't have a script supervisor. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so. it's it's stuff like that. It's yeah. it's really interesting what what you remember as being in there because you've thought about it so much and then you just recently cut it. Yeah. And so it, it completely blips that you've cut that now. You don't have to think about it. The other big one is if a character's name's not quite fitting and you end up changing the character name, you might miss a reference to that other character name. So you randomly have one scene where Julia does this, and everyone's like, who the hell's Julia? And you had already, you've already casted someone for the character of Julia and all this, and you're like, oh, well, that's a problem. But that that is like worst-case scenario if you cast someone for someone that not is actually in the movie. But that's happened in Hollywood. That sounds funny, actually. Yeah, except for the person playing Julia. Big break, and it's like, oh, by the way, your character was renamed to the main character's name. Sorry. <laughs> but, but yeah. So at this point, two days before before the shoot, everything's locked down, everything's ready. Quite often, they'll take a day or two off. Just, like... Take out tension. Yeah. You'll take you'll start on Monday, you'll take Saturday, Sunday off. Everyone except the director. Director's always working. Cinematographer's always working. Above-the-line people, still working. But all below the line, so anyone that is below production designer or art director, director of photography or cinematographer, producers, director, and even script supervisor at this point, this time are usually still working. Everyone else, take a couple of days off. We start on Monday. Nice, fresh. You're not coming in tensed. Yeah. Uh, you, by this time, you've hired a hired stunt coordinator that has like two or three stunts they probably have to do. A slap in scene 45. Stunt coordinator probably has to be. If you need any dogs, cats, snakes, a spider, uh, you bring in an animal wrangler. They bring in, in pre-production. Even if it's not two months before they get to shoot that scene, you still need them in pre-production so you know the budget for that. Producer at this time goes, cool, we barely spent any money. We're going to spend all the money paying everybody in production. You Pay people for pre-production as well if you're a good production, but if you want people to like you. Depending on if your art department's super expensive, this is where the money all of a sudden starts flying out the window is when you actually go into production and you have to pay people $100 each day and there's 75 people on set. and it, it yeah, It's it, easy to see that it adds up quickly once yeah. you actually look, look and think yeah, about once it. Once you realize just how many people are on this set, and how many people have already done most of their jobs. Like production designer at this point, the the prop master hopefully has all of his stuff done, um, at least for the first week. While he's in the first week, he can be building stuff for the next week while they're shooting in the, the other room. At this point, you hire an on-set dresser uh, and an on-set decorator. Uh, we'll get into what they do next week. But you have to hire them now, not on the first day of shooting. You hire them a few days before shoot. They arrive, they look through the set, cool, give a thumbs up. Unset prop master comes in, meets the prop master, cool thumbs up. Um, 
we'll get into what they do. It's pretty obvious they're doing their job on set while the prop master is doing next the next day's work. That and you you mentioned the size of this of of the crew. It's like you could easily have a hundred people on set. Oh yeah, most I've had, and I've haven't gone over. I've gone over five million, I think, twice in my career, and. I think the most I've had on any of those are about 50 people on set. And that's just like, we have a, you bring in a transportation guy that is driving people from a parking lot somewhere onto set. So you don't have 150 cars sitting outside of the set that you're going to be shooting out of windows, like all that kind of stuff. On family weekend, we had to drive everyone from two miles away to the set. So we had transportation vans coming in and then driving off set so they're not in the shots we had shots outside of that house that we had to have them dropped off a block away to walk in a certain way so there's not footprints in the snow that's insane yeah it's it's a logistical nightmare but that's where the or that's where the assistant directors come in the ad keeps everyone on task the second the second ad's and all of that that's keeping logistics in line and right around now, you start hiring PAs or production assistants. They're, or interns, depending on how big you are. But they're the set bitches. They're the ones that are... <laughs> they're the gophers. They're the gophers. They're the ones driving the cars. They're the ones standing outside the window, making sure no no dumbass gaffer walks through the shots. That's happened. Um, they're getting the coffee. Yeah. They're the ones getting the coffee. They're the ones at, at the trailers and logistics of ADs getting trailers to put actors in and to put, especially if you're in winter, where do you put your actors and it's like negative five out? Like that kind of stuff. So in other words, there's a lot that goes into this. All of this is pre-production. Yeah, we haven't even started talking about shooting. Yeah. And we've gone for almost an hour and a half, I think. There is tons of stuff that happens before you ever roll a camera. And yet, it's easily the most neglected phase. Yeah, because everyone knows editing. Everyone knows you have to edit your stuff together. Well, after. Unless you're an idiot, but everyone knows you have a, a music. They're like music and stuff. Everyone knows writing the script, but what happens after that script that has been burning away that writer's head for six months? What happened between the, the yeah. script and the sh- and the first shot? Yeah, people don't take into account. Yeah. I always like lights, camera, action, and it's like, well, lights are already up. Camera, I mean, nobody thinks about sound. (laughs) No, but it sounds good. Yeah. But we'll get into the lights, camera, sound, action next week. That's next week's. Uh, This one, there's a lot going on before you ever roll a camera. And that's where so many people just underestimate pre-production. And then, of course, you've got some people who have such who have giant pre-productions and still have giant post-productions. Post-production, actually, that's yeah. a, that that well, that's that's a good point. Is that the more pre you have, the less post you have to worry about? Correct. Not always, depending on the film, but quite often, the more pre-production you have, the faster production is, and the faster editing and post-production will be. Then you got people like Edgar Wright. Then you have people like Edgar Wright who love pre-production, do a lot of pre-production shoot for 20 days, and then you have, he wrapped on his next movie, Last Night in Soho, he wrapped on it about a month and a half ago, he had like a 20, 25 day shoot, very quick shoot. That's actually phenomenal. Yeah. 
And he always does. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly what he wants. He'll shoot it in less than a month. That's actually yeah. incredible. Oh, yeah. That's very quick, very efficient. But then the movie's not coming out until next September. And a good chunk of that, I'd say 75% of that, is going to be post-production. Yeah. And very little of that is going to be CG, knowing Edgar Wright. I think his oh. most CG he's ever done is uh, World's End. World's End. And yeah. even that, you didn't really a see too much. CG. It's, you know, eyes and that's about it. There's not a whole lot in that movie that's actually CG. I will definitely say I'm looking forward to Last Night in Soho. I am super looking forward to But, yeah, it's like, it's a, yeah, he has such a big pre-production. And then the production, like you said, it's less than a month. That's, whereas we we all know movies that t- that were shot over a year. Lord of the Rings, the collective of Lord of the Rings had two years of pre-production, which, oh my god, holy crap, that's insane. From the guy that made Meet the Feebles and Frighteners comes this huge epic. epic. Let's not, yeah. Two years of pre-production, they shot for over a year and a half. To be fair, they had a lot of movie. Yeah. They had nine to twelve hours of movie. That's insane. The fact that they they did it in a year year and a half. And then they did pre-production on the first one. The post? The post on the first one. Or, yeah, post-production on the first one. And while they were doing post-production on the first one, they were still shooting parts of the second and third. The first movie came out, and then they started doing post... Or then they were doing post-production on the second, and they changed a bunch of stuff, mostly Gollum's design, because Gollum was introduced in two towers. They did all that for two, and they just barely squeaked squeaked by under the under the time limit. They had like two weeks and they finished their film. Like, oh man. Yeah. And then the third one, they were already working on post-production on that. They had done reshoots for it, which we'll get into in post-production. Mm-hmm. But then they squeaked that one just barely under their time limit too. So yeah. Lord of the Rings is one of those that is just a master class in getting stuff done. Almost Barely on time. But they did, and I, I, I again say, I think it will still hold up uh, by the time we're dead and buried, Devin. Yeah. Then there's a movie like Black Panther, and I, I've harped on Black Panther. I'm not a huge fan of Black Panther. They had a decent amount of pre-production, a decent amount of production. The post. Post-production is where they collapsed. It's S- edited fine. Some of those effects. The final fight scene they had, like, Two and a half weeks to composite that entire thing, and, and it what they did shows, and what they did, it, it looks good for having two weeks of post production. Yes, but it also shows that they only had two weeks for post production. Yeah, and that's where the structure of getting everything done in pre, getting everything ready, and know what you're doing, is vitally important. Something, something like Crimson Peak, which has this gorgeous production design, almost universally was done in pre production. All the ghost designs and all that. The gothic, uh, the gothic architecture stood out even in the trailer. Oh, yeah. I was like, the my movie, god. The movie is gorgeous. The story, it's okay. But there are certain times where I wasn't a huge fan of it, but it was still a gorgeous movie. Mm-hmm. So, But yeah, that That's... is pre-production. Uh, I'm sure I missed tons. At this point, you cast a caterer to feed everybody every day. It, we, oh, God, we didn't even talk about logistics of, of everybody need to take a leak or anything. Yeah, you hire... Bathrooms. Uh, these are called human services or something. Or all the bathrooms. <laughs> of course they would yeah. call it human services yeah. as opposed to taking a crap. <laughs> but you, you hire your 
people to know where you go to the bathroom. <laughs> so all porta potties, people like that. If you've seen the movie Kenny, you know what I'm talking about. Oh my Most people have it. God, that's um, no, yeah, it's like we barely scratched the surface, yeah. and yet again, we talked for an hour and yeah. a half without really repeating ourselves too much. Oh yeah. Uh, then you also have to hire a craft services person so that you have water bottles, you have just general snacks or something because the cast and crew are going to get hungry. When we get into production, we'll explain what happens during a day of shooting. Wow. It's an amazing amount of little that goes on a day of shooting at times. But you're still sitting there for upwards of 12 to 24 hours on a shoot. And you need to know what you, you need, need to make bittles. sure that they're not passing out of low blood sugar. You, you need their, they yeah. need their bittles. Yeah. So right now you get your craft service guy. You get your catering for daily meals. You have, if it's a 12-hour shoot, you have six hours food, six hours. You need that food every day or else you're going to have a really pissed off crew and cast. Oh, my um, All of your cast has been hired. All of your extras. If you have a, if you have a shot in a gym that you need a bunch of people. You're not casting all of those as cast. That is extras. You need people to corral those extras. Shaun of the Dead. Shaun of the Dead, yeah. All the zombies. You need makeup artists for all those zombies. Yeah. So that's all if you have group. If you have something like uh, The Guilty, and it's one person at a, at a table, at a phone, you still need all of the people that I've mentioned. Just maybe not any special effects or any extras. Yeah, so. but you also you also need to make sure the person you cast can hold a movie for an hour and a half. Yeah. That's that's a whole different type of uh, struggle. Yeah. So at this point, you know what you're doing. You have everything ready. You have your producers up. You know, with the money, you have the. You're ready to start rolling. Yeah, you have everything ready, willing to go. We start on Monday, and we're going to pick this up next week. That is that is absolutely amazing. Any it boggles my mind, Devin. It really does. Oh, yeah. It's pre-production is my favorite time because it's not in it's pressure, but it it doesn't feel like it's oh god, it has to be done today. Does that make sense? No, yeah, I do. But yeah, that's that. And honestly, watch more movies, people, and yeah. we'll be back next week. Hopefully, Tom will be with us next week. Yeah. And when you watch those movies, just try to think about how much went into it. Yeah, before you immediately throw away a movie for a bad CGI effect like Gemini Man, uh, young Will Smith, not that well done. Look at the rest of that movie. The cinematography in that movie is amazing. That means that all the camera department did their job perfectly. Yeah, Special, there's a lot of other special effects going on that you just don't notice. There's a lot. There's a lot more to a movie than just the, the cast, which unfortunately a lot of people focus yeah. on. Just try to think of all of the crew that made the movies that you like. Something like Ad Astra has thousands, almost millions of people working on it. And just nobody knows who these people are. And yet it's easily my favorite movie this year. Mm -hmm. So when you get a chance, if you're listening to this, look up your favorite movie and look into some of the production designers, the cinematographers, the director. See what else they've done. Quite often, you will find another movie that you like if you follow what you like about the movies that you love. You'll find styles that that, yeah. that mesh with yours. If you like the way the cinematography in Scott Pilgrim vs. the World is done, look up, look up other things that the cinematographer Bill Pope has done. He's phenomenal. He did Gravity. <sighs> oh, that's a... Uh... Yeah. 
Yeah, that's... I could see it. You got an Oscar nomination, maybe a win for Gravity. But... Alright. Yeah. Take that's care, what we're going to end on. Watch more movies. We'll be back next week. Get better, Tom. Take Bye, everybody. folks.